0: Good morning. good morning. How are we doing? You guys did really well. For those of you that aren't here, normally we have green tape kind of marking off the spaces, and we took it out because it was a little cheesy looking for the memorial service yesterday. But look at you, well-behaved people sitting in your little pockets. Uh, good, good to have you. Good to see you this morning. We've been spent. We spent the last three weeks working through First John. We're going to finish the book of First John today. Uh, the goal and what we've talked about over and over that John's writing for is to help us engage in fellowship with the Trinity uh, this fellow, and with each other as well. He, and, and I've pushed you a little bit on the definition. Maybe I've just pushed myself uh, because I, when I grew up, like I said, it was a potluck. It was hanging out with believers, and that's, that's a, definitely a part of fellowship. But what he's writing about is something deeper. It's, it's this participating in the life that flows from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and the love to each other. It's, it's, I, I used the reference last week, and I, it's really cheesy, but I like it, of plugging yourself in like you do the Christmas lights. You're actually drawing life and love from the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, into your own life and sharing it with others. And so today is chapter 5 of First John. It's, it's a wrap-up, but before we read First John 5, I want to remind us because you'll, you'll see when we read it, there are some distracting things in there. I want to remind us of what John has said thus far. This is your uh, three or four or five minute wrap up of the past three weeks. And I know, don't ask me why I didn't just do this instead of preaching three long sermons on it. But um, I, I want to start by remembering the ground that he's already covered. And so, so that's a framework through which you can see chapter five. And there's three main things that I've really focused on. The first is what I keep calling the Trinity's Table of Fellowship. Uh, back in chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 he talks about that, that they've seen this word of life that Jesus has come, they've touched, they've been a part of it and they're write, he's writing to us, to believers, so that we may have fellowship with them and with the Father and the Son and implied in that and in the rest of the text is through the Spirit. And I've used this 14th century icon, this Rublev's icon of the visitors to Abraham that has been used so often to teach about the Trinity, and I talked a lot about that. I just I, I, I like the image because, and I have a copy of it up in my office, and it reminds me that, that God is relating to Himself and inviting me to the table. There's an open spot there where I can come and, and live in relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That there's this one God in three persons that shares life among himself and invites me into that. Now, it's not something we can really understand, right? And everything breaks down. There's not three separate people. It's one God, but, but John's not writing so much so that we can understand the Trinity. He's writing so that we can experience it, so that we can know what that's like. And there's two, two things he says that are important to this. He says it when he, he has this phrase, this is the message, he uses it twice. And the first one is in chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message. We have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. He, he says one of the keys to living in fellowship is living in light, not darkness. This call to transparency, this leaving behind in chapter 2, 15 to 17, the trinity of darkness, this lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, and moving into the light where we're actually known, where we can be seen for who we are and loved. See, we can walk in the light because he says in 1 John 1, 9, God forgives us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There's nothing to be afraid of in the light. And and he calls us over and over in this book, dear children, dear children, because you can come here. Because not only does he want us to walk in light, not darkness, he wants us to, to live letting love flow to and through us. That's, that's chapter 3 and 4. We have been loved by God fully and freely, and we should let that flow into us and through us. That's the way we have fellowship. We, we plop down at the table of the Trinity, we draw that life and love, and we let that flow out of us into the world. Now we're going to read chapter 5. I'm going to break it down into two chunks, and you'll see why I do that eventually. But 1 John 5, we're going to read 1 to 12. We'll start there. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And this is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus... Is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which He has given about His Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It clears mud, isn't it? he He goes around. But the one thing John's saying in these first 12 verses, he's stressing, and this is coming back to this idea of fellowship... He's stressing the importance of belief slash faith. All we have to do is believe. And that, that's very true. The problem is when we say that in our English language and in our culture is that we have a really stunted view of what belief is. We have a stunted understanding. We've inherited it from our culture. We've inherited it from the forces that were in play before we were ever born. But it, it's, it's limited our use and understanding of what the word believe actually means. And John is going to help us expand that. In these first 12 verses, he, he says some things that I help, and this is my phrase, in rescuing belief from the Enlightenment. Now, he didn't mention the Enlightenment. Jeff, where are you getting that? Just bear with me. He, he talks about a lot of things here, but the key one in, in verse 1 is, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And he goes on to talk about that. He links believing to overcoming the world. If you want to overcome the world, you have to believe. In verse 5 he says, who is it that overcomes the world? Only he or she who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then he launches into this really confusing section about blood and water. Anybody else get confused by that? Yeah, what does that got to say? Well, if you can remember, and I'm not going to give you all the details, but John's, one of the things he said throughout his book is, there are people that would lead you astray because they don't see that Jesus is actually God come in the flesh. They see Jesus as a good teacher or maybe kind of divinely inspired for a period of time, but they don't actually see Jesus as the Son of God come in flesh. And and so what he uses these terms, he says, you know, Jesus came by water, which symbolizes baptism. A lot of scholars, I'm, I'm agreeing with the scholars here. There's lots of ideas, but this is my, my take on it. Symbolizes his baptism, and he came by blood, which symbolizes his death. Now, these people that were leading him astray might have given the water part. Yeah, there was, God was doing something in that baptismal moment of Jesus, but Jesus was still just a man that died like the rest of us. They, they wouldn't go to the point of blood. And what, what John's saying is, he came by water and by blood. He was really the son of God. That's what he's saying. But he's launching from that to something else. He says in verse 6, And it's the Spirit who testifies. And then again in verse 10, Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony of the Spirit in his heart. Now this is where he's digging down to what he means by belief. And this is where we need to rescue our understanding of belief from the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment happened in the 1700s. Lots of of, uh, scholars, lots of philosophical thinking... Um, you know, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And what, what, what inspired this enlightenment was people started saying, how do we know that what we know is true? How do we know we're not being tricked? How do we know what's true? And so the philosophers started kicking it around the way philosophers kick it around. And they came to the realization that, well, there were a lot of tenant, you know, kind of pillars of the enlightenment. But one of them was the use of reason. We can use our mental faculties to reason out What's true and what's not. We can build a case for truth and falsity. And, and what, what happened in that process and what's happened since then is that belief moved from something that you held in your gut to something that you knew in your head. You knew it because you could prove it by reason. So believing in Jesus in the church over that period of time became believing the facts about Jesus. Now, there's, you do need to believe the facts about Jesus. I'm not saying you don't. It became knowing and agreeing with the doctrine, and you do need to know and agree with certain doctrinal tenets. But John's using belief in a very deeper sense. In verse 10, remember he said, uh, Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony, this testimony of the Spirit in his heart. There's this idea of coming to the table and, and knowing through this relationship, this deeper kind of believing. And, and we all know there is that deeper kind of believing. You know how uh, <laughs> explain to me how you know when you're in love. You know? It, it's hard to put words to that. You kind of know. But but it's hard to explain it. You can describe it. But it's not something you can just know cognitively. It's something you know by experience. And I've used the the ideas of, you know, when somebody dies, you can know that somebody died. It can be somebody that you know. But when you lose somebody close to you, you know and believe in the reality of death in a very different way. Same thing, you can read all the parenting books you want. But when they hand you that little thing, right, Dustin and gentlemen, when they hand you that little baby, when little Rowan showed up, you know it in a whole different way. It's, it's a deeper way of knowing and belief and experience. My favorite example of that is all the people that sit in the bleachers at a basketball game and know exactly what the coach should do. And I'm on the other side of the floor, and I see it very differently than they do from the bench, right? There's this deeper understanding that's not just cognitive. It's not just cerebral. See, in verse 1, we see that belief slash faith is participatory and relational. He says in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then there's this action in it. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Belief changes us relationally. It links us to God. There's a relational aspect to belief. And things happen because of that. Our actions flow out of it. So belief is participatory. It, It inspires actions it's not passive and and we act out of our beliefs all the time i'm going to give you an example of a person i know who's diabetic and it has not i'm going to let his name remain silent so that he's innocent it's me that's who i'm talking about a diabetic man can know in his head that eating ice cream is not a good thing for him that 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 blood sugar is not good for him And he can know that the the good life, the way he should live his life, he can know that eating ice cream is not a part of that. But when they put that bowl of ice cream in front of him, right, the good life looks a little different to him. And in that moment, what he actually believes will lead him to the best life will determine his actions. And more than often than not, it's, it's having a big bowl of ice cream. See... Belief, and that's what John's driving at, it gets embedded deeply in us. We may not even know what we actually believe. We have said beliefs, things that I say I believe this, but how many of you have said you believe something and then find yourself acting differently than what you know you think you believe? See, but belief can be embedded deep almost in our bodies. That's one of the effects of trauma. You know, people that are traumatized uh, see the world a certain way people that have traumatic experiences as children or, or in their life, it, it shapes the way they view the world in a very deeply embedded way. I've seen people um, fear in a very safe place because of the trauma they had 20 years ago. And, and they can say to you, I know I'm safe right now, but I don't believe it. I don't feel it. I have all the end. All this is happening. Because belief is not just your head. It's embedded in your body. That's that's why, I don't know if you get this, but I'm hoping you do. That's why fellowship with the Trinity is so important. Sometimes it's only by sitting there with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit and letting Him work on those deep levels of our own body and mind that we can be changed. We can't just change our belief at that deep level by just thinking, Oh, I believe this now. God has to do it in us. That's one of the reasons in in Ephesians that Mark read. It says, you know, you're saved by grace through faith, and this faith is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's God that brings that to you. See, belief is more than head knowledge or assenting to something. It's, It's participatory, thus the invitation to the Trinity's table, and it's relational. He says, "Everyone who believes is actually born of God. You're brought into this family, and as that belief and faith begins to work its way through us, then we see that belief and faith leads to love and obedience." Now, now we can know when when belief is where it should be because of the way it shapes our activities. We love others, we obey the commands of God. It says in verse three, the, "This is love for God to obey His commands." Anybody else feel a little kicked in the gut when you hear that? I always John is hard for me because John says these things and it make I'm like, man, I don't I, I don't obey all the commands of God. And the tendency though is to say, I've got to obey these commands to show that I love him. And and what John I think is saying is when you love him, those commands will be obeyed. It's a different thing. It's, it's, it's a cart and horse type of thing. Because he continues in verse 3, and his commands are not burdensome. So if, if, if the commands God gives me are burdensome, then I, I'm not actually living them out the way that I'm supposed to be. I'm not plugged in in a way that's giving me life. He says, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Those, those beliefs have been changed on a deeper level. As we come to the table, as we trust, as we receive the love of God, it embeds that belief deep within us. And love and obedience flow out of that. Instead of us working, and this, is, this is a... I should have bolded this in my notes. Instead of us working to love and obey God to show that we believe, the believing that is given to us through this fellowship begins to bring love and obedience out in our life. It's a whole different way of approaching it. So John says one of the keys to this fellowship is faith and belief. When you're there, belief will be generated in you. God begins to change you. It's given to you as you sit at the table and it shapes your life. And then he wraps up his message like John does, frustrating preachers for eternity, uh, with a closing with challenges. And I'm going to read verses 13 to 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's great. And this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask... We know that we have what we ask of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols." John wanders as he writes. And I'm not going to question John. He's writing by the leading of the Holy Spirit. We believe that. <laughs> but I, as a pastor who tries to teach this, I think, why do you end the book talking about the sin that leads to death? How many of you found yourselves when we got to, there is a sin that leads to death? Mentally, you think, well, what is that? There's an unpardonable sin there. And if we're, if we're not careful, that is all we will think about in chapter 5. Because that's the one thing we're like, What well, have I done that? And so, if I was John, I wouldn't have written that. But you, you see, God didn't choose me to write any books of the Bible, so that's fine. John put it in there, and I want to. He talks about sins that do and don't lead to death. Verse 16 If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. See, that's where we get caught. Okay, what is that sin? That leads to death. What is the, this unpardonable sin? Have I done it? Have, do somebody I know? Have my kids done that? We start. We go down these mental channels, and what will happen if you're not careful is you'll lose the whole book in that one trivial pursuit question that we don't really fully know the answer to. But let me sum it up in two. I'm going to give you one statement in two parts to try to draw your attention to what I think John's doing here. The first is this: sin is an issue. John's reminding us. Sin is not good, that sin will destroy us. When you see a brother and sister in sin, he says, you should pray. In verse 17, he says, all wrongdoing is sin. He says, in fact, there is a sin that leads to death. Sin will destroy us if we let it. If we we don't turn to God and and turn away from that, it it will destroy us. It's not something to be played with. Sin is an issue, but the point is prayer and fellowship. See, if, if you look at those first two verses, 14 and 15, this is the confidence we have. Actually, yeah, 13, 14, 15. But I'm going to read 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of Him. He's writing about the fact that within this fellowship of God, we have confidence that we can be at this table living in a relationship. And if we're there, we have the freedom to ask the things that are on our heart. And then he moves into a specific example. He says, for example, if you have a brother or sister and you know them and they're sinning, you should give that to God. You should tell God. Because you're right there, you're living in fellowship with Him. You have the right to ask, and, and God will give life to that person. He's saying, uh, people sin, we make mistakes. He goes on in verse 19 and 20 to say, we know that we're the children of God. See, our identity's there. And the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. Once again, that's that fellowship, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. See, the point here in this section is not for John to say, let me tell you about the unpardonable sin. What he's saying is when we live in fellowship with God and those around us are caught in sin, we we can bring that to God. And God will bring the same life He's given to us to them. And I'm not just going to avoid the unpardonable sin or the sin that leads to death. If you think about it in the context of the whole book, There's really only one thing that keeps you from God, and that is refusing to come to the table. That is refusing to to open yourself up to that fellowship. It's turning completely away. I mean, that's that's what I think he's talking about. And and I always tell people when they say, do you think I've committed the unpardonable sin? And I say, the fact that you're asking that tells me you haven't. You want to be at the table. The people that, that commit the sin that keeps them away from God don't care at all. See, our focus needs to be coming to that fellowship, that relationship with God. Because back in chapter 1, verse 4, John writes, that's how we are making our joy complete. He says, I write this to you so that we can make our joy complete. So how do we take this book and apply it to our life? What are some things we can do? I've got a few that I'll close with. First thing that should characterize our life is that we should be seeking to live moving toward God this is really vital and is one area, I think, where our choices make a really huge difference. Back at the very beginning of the book, that which we have Heard from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, which our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. John's saying, guys, we saw Jesus. We saw the word of life, the, the, the physical manifestation of God. We saw him, we touched him, we heard him, and, and we're telling you about him. He says in verse 3, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And I think he's implying through the Spirit there. The reason he says we are proclaiming this is because you need to come into fellowship with us and with the Trinity. Moving toward God. Sitting. That's why I like that icon with the table. It it invites me right into it. I want to be moving toward it. Plugging into that life and light and love of God as it flows through all the persons of the Trinity. Now the challenge is that, that this part is difficult. There's something in our brokenness, and I want to speak honestly with you here, and I want you to think honestly about your own life. There's something in our brokenness that resists that. We want to do it on our own. We want to make our own way. And, and once we've... I'm not saying we lose our salvation. Don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that once we're a child of God we walk away from that. But, but there are times in our life, and I think we all know that, when we live in such a way as to to hinder or resist that fellowship with God. We do something, we fall back into an old habit pattern. um, And and at that moment, sometimes turning around back to the table, coming into the light, admitting our own brokenness is the hardest thing in the world to do. I see it in my own life. Instead of just admitting what I've done, I will resist it and fight it because there's something in me that wants to make it on my own. And it, it's this turning back to the table, walking into the light, owning my brokenness and my hesitation and my staying away, my, my choice to do things my own way. It's, it's it, this turning back. is That's that word repentance, to, to change direction, to think completely differently, to come back. See, human nature... In our broken state, even with Christ in our lives, we still fight to be the center of of the universe. We still fight to be the one who's in control, the one who's in charge, the one who everything else revolves around. We want to do it our way. But when you look at the Trinity, there's not a center. There's three that are the center, and we're invited into that. Remember we talked about the Trinity has this culture of self-giving love. How the, the Father loves the Son, loves the Spirit. They all pour themselves out into each other. And, and if, if we're going to center life around us, that will never be a part of our, our experience. And so what we do is we have to turn back. We have to live life moving toward God instead of away. Instead of holding on to the things that, that, that we want. In the, the psalm for today, Psalm 8611, Teach me your way, Lord. That I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart. One that doesn't turn away. One that seeks to stay at the table. That seeks to walk in the light. The second thing is, 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 has to do with that light. Let light keep you humble and honest. You see, John talked in the first chapter 2 uh, about light. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you in 1.5. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Light keeps us humble. That's the thing, when I'm I'm doing my own thing, I've decided that this fellowship with the Trinity is not what's going to fuel my life at the moment. I'm going to do my own thing. If, if, if I'm going to turn into the light and turn back to God, it's going to humble me. I'm going to have to admit that I've chosen to go the opposite way. And I'm going to be humbled by that, which is a good thing. And I'm going to be forced to be honest. He, he says, if you claim, if you claim that you've got fellowship, but you walk in darkness, you're lying. If you claim to be without sin, light forces us to be honest about who we are. And part of a culture of self-giving love which we see in the Trinity requires that we be honest because that places us in a position to receive what God has to give. If you're never honest about your own sin and your brokenness, if you're never honest about your own failures, you're you're never willing to receive forgiveness. Once again, if if we refuse to do that, it's coming back to our tendency to do it on our own. So the third thing is practice receiving love and rejecting fear. You know, the older I get... I say that a lot now. The older I get, the more that I've come to believe that 99% of the spiritual life is being willing to receive what God will give to you. (laughs) I mean, when I was young, I was going to set the world on fire. I was going to do all these things for God. And the older I get, the more I realize, you know what? You just need to receive what God gives to you and live out of that. That's 1 John 4. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And further on down, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. You know, there is no fear in love. One of the things that, <laughs> that I'm seeing more and more is, is our culture and our world is gripped by fear. I, I, I made a devotional this week on our Facebook page about the words we say and, and let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is profitable for building others up. And I think one of the problems with our culture is that we're feeding fear. And the things we share on Facebook and the, the concerns that we have, we just keep feeding it. And, and what we need to do is, is practice receiving the love of God and rejecting fear. You know, you don't have to fear what CNN and Fox News tell you. We don't have to be afraid. There is a king on the throne who's ruling. And even if they kill us, even if the world falls apart, even if your portfolio, financial portfolio falls apart and you have no money and you starve and you die and you're kicked out of your house, (laughs) you're still going to be just fine. Because you're held in the love of God. And we need to practice receiving love and rejecting fear. Which I, I think is the very last line of the whole book. Dear children, keep yourselves... From idols. Dear children, he says, I, I, I want you to, to, you've been invited toward God. You've been invited toward love and into light, so keep yourselves from idols. See, idols are these things. We, we talk about them. Jake did a really good description of idols not long ago, and, and it helped us understand that. But we... we, we What we've got to realize is idols are these things that when we're turning away from fellowship, we're looking to the idols to give us that same sense of satisfaction, that same sense of being. That dark trinity back in chapter 2, the lust of the flesh, letting your feelings drive your life. Or lust of the eyes, letting what you have or want drive your life. Or the pride of life, letting a desire for power and control guide your life. Those are idols that we cling to, which keep us moving toward ourselves instead of moving toward God. All these things keep you from that, from moving toward God, from from the humbling honesty that comes in the light, from from accepting love, which makes you able to reject fear. You know, Jonah, remember Jonah? God says, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to tell the people in Nineveh my message. And Jonah, we find out later, doesn't want to go. He, He hates the Ninevites. He wants them wiped out, right? He wants them gone. And um, and so he says no. He jumps in the ship going the other way to Tarshish. Remember that? Ends up in the belly of a large fish. And he prays in the belly of a large fish. And, and I, years ago, I underlined Jonah 2.8, which was a line in his prayer. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. And Jonah thought, I mean, he still didn't learn. He prayed this beautiful prayer and then he still messed up in chapter 3 and 4 of Jonah that's me too. I, I know this truth, but I, I have not yet got it down here. But when we hold on to power and control and the stuff we have and the way we feel, when we cling to worthless idols, we turn away from God's love for us. And I want, I want to ask you, I'm just going to give you some words, and, and I would encourage you Write them down on an index card and pray them every single morning. Pray them three or four times a day. Just a daily prayer where you would say, God, help me to live toward you today instead of running away. Help me to to walk in the light and embrace the humility and honesty that it brings. Is that me? Who knows? Okay. Let me go back again so we'll get that. There's four things in this prayer. And they're the last four points. Help me to live towards you today instead of running away. Help me to walk in the light and embrace the humility and honesty that it brings. Help me to receive your love and reject the temptation to be afraid. And help me to keep myself from idols which would hinder my participation with you in fellowship. You know, I think if you pray that from your heart if if you you get up every day and you remind yourself of those things pray it from your heart eventually that fellowship with the spirit will embed so deeply in you that you'll live that it'll come out of you it won't be something that you just think about it'll be it'll be it'll be a a a GPS embedded deep inside of you that guides you where you need to go it'll help you to make decisions so what I want to do as I close in prayer today is I want to do just that I'm going to pray those four phrases and I'm going to pause after each one and I just want you to make it your own Let's pray. God, we come to you. We appreciate John and his writing, and there's so many things in there that we've just kind of glossed over. But we hear this invitation to fellowship, and we want to respond to it, God. And God, I want to ask for each one of us, help us to live towards you today instead of running away. God, help us to to walk into the light and embrace the humility, sometimes the humiliation, and the honesty that it brings. God, help us to receive your love and to reject the temptation to fear. finally, God, help us to keep ourselves from idols that hinder our fellowship, our participation in the divine life with you. God, that is, is our prayer, that we could sit at the table with you, that we could draw life from you, that you would, would pour into our lives your love and your grace, that you would embed the belief in Jesus as the Son of God deep, deep within our physical bodies and, and right at the very core of who we are. And allow light and love to flow out of that to all those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot over the past six months. Some of my studies have directed me this way. Thinking about trauma and how deeply it impacts people. Whether it's emotional trauma or psychological trauma, physical trauma. How, how it shapes their behavior in ways that they feel totally out of control of. And yet the scripture says that God has come to undo the works of the evil one. And so it makes sense to me that if, if the evil one can create things in our lives that embed so deeply in us that they control our behavior, sometimes without our even realizing it, that the Holy Spirit can undo that. And he can, he can embed belief and truth deeply in us that flows, that changes our actions. And so... My hope for you is that you can take John's words in this book, especially these words I'm going to read to you, and let the Holy Spirit embed that deep within you so that that becomes the catalyst for the way you live. John 3, 1. 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Amen.